is Hannah. My pronouns are they, them. You are once again checked into a podcast on a queer folks' favorite tunes. Welcome to Queer Sounds. It's been a while since I last had a guest from Australia on the show, so it's about time to change that up a little. Um, special thanks to our friend Gunit for connecting us. Hi there, AJ. How are you? Hello, I'm good. I'm good. I'm AJ. Um, my pronouns are he, him. Um, how are you? How are you going? I'm doing great. I don't want to date this episode too much, but I, I had a lovely weekend. Um, <laughs> you know, I was starting a new job. I graduated. It's been my birthday. Concerts are happening again. COVID restrictions are being lifted. I've just had a lot to celebrate. I really made the last weekend count, and I'm not as hungover for this recording as I thought it would be. <laughs> That's always a win. Absolutely. But with me starting a new job, you just wrapped yours up. Um, so how would you describe what you do in daily life? How, please give the people listening an AJ 101. Oh, gosh. That's a good question. So um, I work in the arts. I'm a comedian. Um, and I also produce um, shows. I work in marketing. I've worked in arts marketing in my like kind of professional, you know, the kind of uh, job that pays a weekly salary type job. Um, I've been working in the arts administration world for about six years now. Worked at the Opera House, which was fun. Um, worked, just finished up in a smaller theatre based in Sydney. Um, and now just looking to kind of explore my own comedy, maybe get a part-time job. You know, the great resignation, that whole that whole thing, you know, COVID, that thing that happened. Um, so just, yeah, having a shift of pace and... Um, just trying new things, really. You also appeared in some TV ads, right? How did that happen? Oh, yes. I was on a, I was on a Vodafone ad uh, recently. Um, and I've done a couple of ads in my time, which is always fun. I, um, I started joining... I joined a Facebook group randomly that um, was asking for extras. Um, and then I was kept on working with this one individual who... Um, just like if any show needed extras, they were just like going to him and, and certain other people. Um, and especially just pre COVID and during COVID, there was a lot of Marvel films that came to Australia because Australia was one of the few countries in the world that remained open and relatively COVID free. So um, a lot of films came out here. So there was a lot of extra work. And then he started to, um, yeah, put me forward for some ads as well. So it's fun occasionally just appearing on the TV and just seeing yourself there and be like, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird to think you can just get a job by joining a Facebook group. Yeah, it was one of these things where they would post and we're like, we're looking for these, like either looking people or we're just looking for people who look young or maybe old or whatever the film requirements may have been. And people would just go, me, me, me. And then he would just contact people from that. But it was legit. It could have been very not legitimate. <laughs> but it turned out to be quite legitimate, which is always fortunate. It's always good. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like something that could turn out to be very sketchy, something that could go wrong very quickly. But I'm glad it worked out for you. I don't recommend it. But if, if it's legitimate, then I do. It's like, be careful about it and hope that you're lucky, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Well, you can kind of tell there was a lot of people commenting, so I was like, okay, this can't just be fake profiles that they've made. They're, there's there's hundreds of people. I'm I'm pretty sure this is okay. Well, talking about being lucky, uh, we've got the luck to play this wonderful, amazing track for y'all today. 
Today's musical memory, it's Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. Let's, Let's go, go, girls. The legendary 1997 album Come On Over. It's Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. Why did you select this track for today, AJ? I I had the album. I remember I didn't buy the album. Maybe my sister got the album. Maybe we stole it from our older cousin who we saw all the time. I can't remember how we acquired the album. Um, but I remember my sister and I spent hours like listening to all of the songs on the track and it was back in the day where you get a cd like you know this is the 90s so you'd get a cd and then you would open it up and then there would be a little booklet and as well as kind of doing the credits and stuff and art imagery there would be the lyrics to all of the songs as well so then you could open them up and like read through and that was like kind of my earliest memory of like music obviously i've been around music like music is pretty much in everything and on everything but like specifically going to a song and reading the lyrics and, and trying to actively learn them because you like them so much. How did you end up with the Shania Twain album specifically? Like, is it just something your relative happened to have and it also could have been literally any other record? Potentially. I think it was I think it was a part of the era. I remember later on there was definitely some Spice Girls um, like CDs that we came across. We, me and my sister were quite close in age, we're about a year and a half apart, and we were very close um, to our cousin, who was about four or five years older. Um, and so when they had, you know, it's that typical younger kid thing, hanging out with older kids, and whatever they do is cool, regardless of actually whether it is or not in hindsight. You just do what they do, you know? So she had Shania Twain, so we liked Shania Twain. If she had, I presume she had Metallica, we would have loved Metallica. Like, we would have gone wherever our cousin um, kind of led us. So I think it's probably um, definitely my cousin who instigated that. It's like, yeah, you. I'm an eight-year-old, you're a 12-year-old, you've seen the world, you know what you're on about. <laughs> you've been through things that eight-year-olds just have not. <laughs> I totally recognize that. So you mentioned owning that album. Are you or were you a big like collector of vinyl or CDs? Do you have like a little collection at home? 
Um, I have a relatively small actual vinyl collection. Um, I moved to Australia in 20... Oh gosh, 2016-ish? Um, no, just before in 2015. And obviously when you move countries and stuff, there's a lot of things you can't take and all the luggage and everything like that. And so my family and I had quite a lot of CDs, like so many CD, so many VHSs. Um, <laughs> and no charity shops or wanted them because, you know, um, who uses them anymore besides a small amount of people who reminisce. Um, but I did get a, um, a vinyl player uh, a few years ago now, and I have a few select vinyls, but it was mainly to play Nat King Cole. Because I don't know why, that was quite... <laughs> that played a lot when we were growing up. I think my mum must have been a fan. And so we were kind of always surrounded by his music. And so I have quite a few of his vinyls. Um, just sitting there waiting in case I have a dinner party or I'm just feeling in the mood on a rainy day like it is today and just... Yeah, it's a, it's a real mood maker. Um, so how did your taste in music develop over time? Like you started in the Shania Twain kind of corner. Where did you go from there? <laughs> you move from Shania Twain that sounds like someone's autobiography um but I I think I was definitely a, a millennial kid in that aspect there was it was pop for a lot of the time it it was the different pops of different area it was Spice Girls then it was Steps then it was S Club 7 in the UK and um you know there's that kind of trajectory of like all the pop and then at some point in the noughties everything got a little bit more innuendo from innuendo pop to like just explicit pop. I, I think that's the best way to describe right. it, where it's like, you know, like they're alluding to things in Spice Girls and like it's hidden between the lines and then it's, you know, and then all of a sudden it's it just, you know, disco stick and ride it. Um, but <laughs> it is just, yeah, it's it's on there. It's, it's um, and so I, I kind of moved a bit more into R&B, I would suppose, that type of pop when, you know, Beyonce was getting bigger and, um, you know, you had Destiny's Child and Sean Paul and Boo Contrell and just that kind of side of pop more than the kind of um, generic pop, I suppose. I, I, I'm t very terrible with um, terminology, so do forgive me if you're listening to this like, that's not what it's called. Um, but that's that's essentially where I kind of went. And then, but then obviously, yeah, there's so many different, like when it comes to popular music and just music in general, because it had become so accessible by the time I kind of left high school was at university, you just encounter lots. And sometimes I feel like if I was the generation of the 80s, I wouldn't have necessarily had exposure to as many genres and been like, oh, well, I actually like that, even though I wouldn't have said that I'm a, a, a rock fan. I've heard this song because it's on at the, the supermarket and I actually quite like that. So I'm going to go away and listen to it. Um, and I feel like that just helped spread and kind of collect my um, my internal repertoire of music. How would you describe your music consumption in your daily life? Um, I think it, it's very sporadic. I'm I'm actually not someone who um, I don't even have a Spotify account. It's pretty bad. Um, I go to YouTube and I uh, <laughs> type what I'm feeling. I'm very kind of impulsive like that. Um, and so I, and when I walk as well, I'm a power walker. I don't tend to listen to anything. I'm just like, get to A to B, boom, 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 boom. In that very queer way. Um, fast walking, get there, get the job done. <laughs> Transport yeah, is yeah. is a distraction. Um, and so I, I listen to it at very times. And it's usually like I want music to do a certain thing for me, which I think we all do. But it's, I want to feel relaxed or I've got people coming over. So I want it to have a nice ambience or like, 
I want to get a bit pumped up because I'm going to go to a bar and it's going to be loud and I want to just feel a bit more energized because I've just come off a nap. And so it's much more instigated by um, kind of my mood and where I want to be rather than like, oh, I haven't heard this artist in a while. I'm going to go put them on. When you're using music as like a mood maker, how do you go about that? Because Spotify is really big in those mood setting type of playlists, but you don't have a Spotify account. So, you know, how do you go about that? How do you know what to put into the YouTube search bar? That's a very good question. And it is, um, it, it's the same kind of way as like, I, 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 the way I cook for myself is very similar. I, I, I have a repertoire in my head. I, I go for dinner out to different restaurants and I see something and I taste something. I go to someone else's house and they're cooking something. And so I'm exposed to a lot of things. But then when it comes time to me to go shopping, I remember the five meals that I cook on the regular and I get the ingredients and I forget that other every other meal exists except maybe one month I get reminded of a new menu that I, I like a thing that I haven't cooked in like months. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this thing. I completely forgot about it. But it's sitting in my head. I just didn't remember to remember it. And then it'll kind of appear to the forefront. And that's what I'll cook for the next week. And then after that week, I'll get bored of it. Um, <laughs> and then forget about it and the cycle will repeat. Um, and that's the kind of same way I approach music in that respect. It is a lot of listening to very similar stuff for a, a period. And then I'll go away and then I'll go to a friend's party and they're playing something. And I'm like, oh, who's that artist? And I go to the screen or like their Spotify playlist on their phone. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I'll write it down somewhere or I'll scribble it on Messenger. And um, and then again, I'll forget about it. And then I'll be prompted at some point in the future to be like, oh, I wrote that artist down. And then I'll go back through Messenger, find the artist, put him in YouTube. It's very chaotic. It is. <laughs> <laughs> is that also how you would describe yourself like chaotic is that a word that applies to you oh i definitely think my my mental state if you could I'd, I'd like you know take a camera and put it to someone's you know cognitive behavior and see it quite clearly mine would be very erratic i'm very <laughs> i'm very kind of impulsive in the now i'm also very like five things at once um five things at once poorly um, just <laughs> lots of different thoughts and threads going on. I can be doing one thing as it leads into ADHD as well. I can be doing one thing, go away. And then like the shower has been running for 10 minutes and I was just about to get in, but I was like, Oh, I need to put my phone on charge. So I can put my phone on charge. And then I look at something on TikTok cause I get a notification and TikTok's there. And then my partner might be like, Oh, blah, blah. And then I go have a conversation. <laughs> so that is just that, that conversation, how that sounds is, is my head. Um, <laughs> I wasn't aware that you um, moved countries. So do you have a certain type of music you connect or you associate to the move? Because, you know, people associate um, music with like the literal geographical or physical spaces in their lives. Do you, do you connect to that as well? Um, I don't think I have a specific song that I, I would pick out. I think a specific genre that sticks out to me, though, is... Um, is, is that stark difference, as I mentioned earlier, it was a lot of pop and R&B when I was growing up and when I was in the UK. Um, when I moved to Australia, they don't really have that, like, music background here. Like, I grew up in London, so it's obviously a very multicultural, diverse, lots of different things going on. Australia is a much smaller country, even the bigger cities are quite small comparatively to Europe. And so, you know, the, the diversity of everything is smaller and in, that includes music. And one thing that I find quite synonymous with Australia is that everybody loves 
rock. Rock is like the main flagpole of Australian music. We're in the UK for pretty much all of my life. Like I was aware of rock as a genre. Obviously, there's famous um, songs that people all know, and you know, you got bands like Queen and everything like that. But it was not really like a a, a cultural factor when I was growing up, at least. Um, kind of as an older millennial, I suppose. Um, but here it was very much a, you know, when you go out to bars and pubs, nine times out of ten, it's it's a rock playlist of some sort. It's, it's you know, in the mall or in the shopping centre, it's, it's most likely going to be a rock song, but obviously they've got pop and everything like that. But that is very iconic Australia. Yeah, so in Australia, you're more likely to walk into the supermarket and hear an ACDC track. Whereas uh, in the UK, you're more likely to hear a song from like, I don't know, I'm blanking on an example here, but you know what I mean, right? That's a, a choice of Anne or someone or maybe, <laughs> or like, you know, a Taylor Swift or um, it's been a while since I've been in the UK. So, so maybe the, maybe people would be like, Tesco sounds different now. Tesco's is a supermarket chain, but um <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, it would, like, it was, it was noticeable. So, so I think the fact that it was noticeable means it is such more, to me at least, it, it feels like it's much more integrated into Australiana, um, than it is in the UK where it's just a, a musical genre that, that has a lot of history in the UK, but is not necessarily like the, the, the core music genre that is, um, uh, iconic of modern day Britain. I'm kind of surprised that you mentioned Taylor Swift as an example, because when you mentioned um, Australia's love for rock, I kind of immediately connected that to race because, you know, rock is a very white genre, whereas, you know, in London, I expect more multiculturalism. So I expected like a non-white artist. Is that is that also uh, is that a false assumption to make or am I right in thinking that's part of the story here? Yeah, I think that definitely feeds into it. Um I don't, yeah, it's interesting my experience with um, kind of a race in, in, in Australia compared to the UK. I think it's become, uh, um, it's become prevalent in certain circles and definitely not an issue in others. Um, so I live in Sydney for context and, and Sydney is one of Australia's larger cities, if not the biggest. I'm not sure which one's bigger, Melbourne or Sydney, but um so there is a lot of multiculturalism in, in both of those cities and, and across Australia. Um, but it's it's definitely much more of a noticeable shift, like you say, compared to a London. Um, it's it's hard for many places in the world, to be honest, to be like a London. Um, yeah, I think the journey is, is it's definitely much like Sydney. It's, it's just like different pockets of areas where you encounter things and things become prevalent and other areas where you're like you could easily forget certain things and it doesn't seem to be um, a, 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 a conscious thought at least. Did your music listening habits also change after the move? I think so. I think the things, and obviously this is uh, that my hypothetical life, if I stayed in the UK, I, I have a feeling that the types of music I listen to and the genres and the artists that I know as a baseline would be very different. Um, and I say that more so from being in comedy and 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 kind of observing the difference in um, Australian comedy versus the UK um, and having grown up with a lot of British comedy and, um, you know, the way the, the, the social norms, I suppose, and the, and the styles that a country produces with any genre. 
um, is very different from Britain compared to Australia, even though the first the, the language is the same. Um, and, you know, um, it's, it's, it's developed and changed um, and it's become its own thing in Australia. And I, I'm, I feel like the same with music um, is true, that the UK has, has grown and is growing in a certain direction or many different directions, and Australia is doing the same. All right, let's listen to an example of the music you brought to the table today. It's RuPaul, the classic City That Walk. Pick myself up, turn the world on its head. Don't forget what, don't forget what my mama said. People talking since the beginning of time. Let's say paying your bills, pay them bitches no mind. So, when you wrote me the email saying you want to have RuPaul on the show, you mentioned it's so tacky, but RuPaul, um, I know that everything they do is gold, but their songs are just so catchy in camp. Like, you kind of sound apologetic about it. Yes, that would be true. It is. It's. It's. Um, I think it's definitely seen as a cop out because I, the question that was like um, uh, that provoked that was favorite queer artist, and I think a lot of people would be would be going, "How dare you say RuPaul was your favorite queer musical artist?" Considering the long history of very queer icons that that formulate much of the global um, narrative about what queer music is. Um, but to me, at least, I think that that ending that I wrote in that sentence, um, that very, the gayness of it all is just so damn catchy. Like, like I said, I grew up with British comedies. It's, 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 it's camp and it's farcical and it's, it's very what it is. It isn't necessarily super complex. It isn't multi-layered. It's, it's, you know, simple things gone wrong, simple characters doing simple things. Um, and I think sometimes that goes with the music. It's it's very gay. I think if you played it to anyone, they'd be like, "Oh yes, this is a very gay song." But that's what makes it great, in my opinion, is that it's simple and gay, and that's what you live for. You want to have that moment sometimes where you just want to like fill your oats, so to speak, and just be like, "Oh yeah, I'm great. Like <laughs> I'm a sissy that walk." So did you decide in the moment I'm just gonna go with what feels good to me right now? Or did you actively deliberate for a very long time um, before you decided, uh, let's not overthink it, fuck it, I'm just going to go pick RuPaul? I think it's a bit of both. I feel like sometimes in a queer uh, circle, or at least in my experiences with queer circles, and obviously um, I'll let you speak to your experience in your own queer circles, but sometimes we, we tend to get very hyper-intellectual, whether it comes to politics or social issues and as many debates and, and, and conversations and this factor and that factor. And because it is so um, kind of high conversation, sometimes just going something with something so simple, something that just gets the job done 
is is a little bit of a catharsis from that narrative, you know, especially being more um, politically engaged and socially engaged. You know, sometimes I think we all, regardless of who we are in the work we're doing, sometimes it's like, oh, it's a been a big day <laughs> i've been through all the articles and i've read all the the threads and the feeds and all of this stuff and sometimes i just i'm gonna watch a cartoon and it's gonna be silly and it's gonna be <laughs> nonsensical and there's no real plot and there's no character development and there's none of that but i'm just gonna do it because i need to turn off um and i think that was where I came to having thought about that. And I was like, oh, you know, the best queer artist, how do you find what the best is? Is it is it through, like, their subversion of a genre? Is it through their cultural impact? And my brain was doing that. And I was like, do you know what? <laughs> what do I like to listen to that sounds very gay? To me, this is what I'm <laughs> defining as best at the moment. Yeah, I guess what proves you're absolutely 100% right about this is that it took... <laughs> 50 plus episodes for RuPaul to ever come up in this podcast. <laughs> there you go. I've ruined the track. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but yeah, with that, um, that also brings me to your comedy work as well, because, you know, with RuPaul, there is the obvious, um, there's the obvious complaint of transphobia in the show and in their comedy and everything. Um, so, you know, talking about your comedy routines, how do how do you go and avoid you know, being being offensive and hurting people in uh, whether or not it's intentional yeah totally and i think i think we live in a world that is very polarized as we all know and but that happens with the micro kind of bubbles that we live in as well as the macro you know you you have your the democrats and republicans and i'm not sure of the the, the dutch parties but uh, <laughs> i imagine it's the same in the netherlands you know we have equivalent australia and the same goes political um discourse everywhere um but i think it also happens on a micro level as well in the conversations when you're having um you know big conversations within smaller groups that you consider kin and community who are all aligned generally because you identify in the same way or you're a part of the larger community group but even still like you get left and right opinions and I think uh, not politically but just very opinions rather um, and I think the same comes with uh, comedy mm -hmm. because it is very subjective and one person might be like, you know, very adamant that they're not doing something of a certain way, but someone else interprets it or, or feels um, rightly or incorrectly a hypothetical situation, but it crosses that line. And, and comedy is one that I think um, comes up a lot. You know, we've had Dave Chappelle and the special on Netflix. And, and on the other end, um, Hannah Gadsby of Nanette faced a lot of backlash for the opposite reason. They thought it wasn't comedy. It technically wasn't this. It was... And so um, I think generally I try to only... And this is me personally, because I do stand by the fact that I feel like anyone should be able to talk about anything. I'm very kind of, uh, kind of firm in the opinion that if you're smart enough and you know the context in which you're telling it and you know who you are and how you present and the world you're in, anyone should be able to make a joke about anything. But not everybody has all of those things in order to do so. And so, you know, uh, I tend to speak about things that are within my wheel of experience, whether that's direct or very close knit, in order to make sure that I don't do that. And, you know, I haven't come across a situation where I feel like I've crossed any of that lines or audiences have come up to me and said, oh, I feel like this is not right or, or you know, whatever, whether it's... Um, 
uh, kind of transphobia or anything else. But the the easiest way is to own, is to talk about what you know rather than talking about things that have nothing really to do with you. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is the best person to make fun of is yourself. Totally. And you know, you, you know the best way to read yourself. Like, <laughs> like I would be like I'm not the kind of person who would do a good comedy roast. I think I would be that contestant on Drag Race or whatever who just says it really mean, and then, then I just feel bad about myself because that's not who I am. Because um, I just, it's not my style. But I think if you ask anybody, they would be able to read themselves and be like, oh, yeah, I'm totally this person. Or you could say that about me. Um, because we know ourselves mo the most. We know our own experiences the most. And, you know, I think there's many ways to do comedy. But I think the best comedy is when you get to know the comedian through the jokes they tell. We have, you know, there's a lot of double ups. We'll, a lot of people will look at a situation and see the same thing. But I think it's really special when you see a comedian tell a joke and you can tell it's authentically them. And the easiest way to do that is to talk about your direct experiences and yourself because no one will be able to do that better than you. Yeah, but in that sense, people could still be offended by anything you do, even if you are being your purest, um, most authentic self if people think you are perpetuating harmful stereotypes just by being who you are, you can still expect some backlash. How would you, how would you engage with that? Yeah, totally. And I think there's an element which comes back to, um, you know, in, in comedy, it's known as punching down as in, um, making fun of people or, or um, demeaning people that are less privileged in society compared to yourself. Um, but it also, I think, goes back to kind of what I mentioned earlier, where I think anyone can tell a joke about anything if they have the, the kind of the skill, the intelligence, the context and the understanding of who they are and what they're bringing to it. And I think it gets murky when you don't have that. And that's whether you are like, you know, major international touring comedian or you're just starting and you go to your first show and you've written your first jokes. Um, those skills will develop and I, and I, and you know, uh, I've come across people, I run a, a program in Sydney, which to kind of help new comedians, um, like learn how to perform on stage. And it's kind of like a one-on-one -on, -one on how to actually perform. So we don't teach joke writing, but it's more about like, how do you use a microphone? What do you do when you get on the stage? Like, you know, what are you moving around? Like all of those kind of practical things. And We've had some people as a part of that who kind of started off telling like they might they've told a couple of jokes and we've gone, OK, I see where you're coming from. It's all good. Like <laughs> this is not about punishing anyone or saying that's bad. How dare you? And, you know, chucking them out by their ear. But it's going, why? What was the motivation? What were you trying to do here? Let's let's dissect what's what's going on. And, and, and then, you know, help you figure out why that might not have been the best course to get there. Um, and so, you know, I think it's part of the learning curve. And unfortunately, in today's society, if you if you go to public on the learning stage, you can end up with a lot of backlash. And then that, either, you know, fuels you to do more of that stuff because you resent the feeling or makes you shut down completely because you feel like you've made the biggest faux pas and the world hates you and you're done. Um, and so I think there's room for learning um, and, and hopefully that learning is quick and at home or with a few people that you trust rather than on stage in front of a lot of people who can get hurt by it. But I think for some people, at least not everybody, it is about kind of having that inherent understanding about what you're doing and learning that very quickly. <laughs> 
Yeah, I feel like I um, went through the same process with this podcast. Like um, right now, there are probably things I wouldn't say anymore, which I did say in one of the earlier episodes. So I'm guessing that learning curve is always there, whether it's comedy, podcasting, writing music or whatever. I do feel like comedy um, is the worst off, though, because it's got such a bad reputation. Um, because of transphobia, because of people punching down, because of people making tasteless jokes. Um, how, how do you go about navigating a space that has such a bad rap? I feel half the work that I do in comedy is mostly chatting to people and assuring them that comedy isn't um, what the stereotypes are. It's, it's weird. I feel like most other art forms, and I'm trying to find any exceptions and I can't, but, like, if you talk about theatre, people will talk about different pieces of theatre and understand that they're very separate pieces and, you know, some of it's good and some of it's bad. And if you're talking about film, you might like a film, you might not like a film, but no one ever goes, film is terrible. I hate film. No one ever goes, theatre is terrible. I hate theatre, full stop. There is not a theatre, there's not a musical um, ever that I would... They're all bad. Like, um, obviously, it's subjective. If you don't like people singing at you, then you're not going to like a musical, but... No one, you know, you don't tarnish the entire genre because you saw a bad musical that might be quite queerphobic and gone, well, they're all like that. Um, but comedy, for some reason, it's the exception to this rule. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because it is a very threatening space out of all of them. It's, it's very... The things that make it great are also the things that make it quite violating when it goes wrong. It's, it's casual. It feels like you, you're just in a bar sometimes. They're, they're there. They're it like, you know, they're a meter away from you. Like, you're close. There is no sense sometimes that there is this distance that performing arts have where you've got the stage and then what's on the stage and the audience um, is accessible. Anybody can give it a go. Um, and, and so a lot of these things, which can make it really fun and interesting and a great way to express yourself can also lead to people saying horrible things in those settings without any vetting or um, curating of that. And if you are an audience member that, that happens just to go into the wrong comedy show, you are you can be quite, you know, tarred by that experience overall. And I, I don't blame anyone for having horrible experiences and never wanting to go again. Um, I've been to shows where I've performed and then been followed by someone who, you know, is is problematic in, in in a myriad of ways um and then gone up to audience members after and been like hey that was not okay just to let you know like that is not what it all is and that you know you just went into the wrong venue and i performed in the wrong lineup because <laughs> you know you kind of i felt the need to justify many times to justify what it is and to, to point them into places that they won't, you know, get sexually accosted from the stage for being a woman who happens just to sit close to a man who's talking. Um, and so it is It is quite difficult, but I will always attest that there is a great space in comedy. There are a lot of great spaces in comedy, and it's just, you just have to do a little bit more work, unfortunately, to find what they, like, which, which shows and stuff are going to be like that. Um, but once you do, I think you can have a really great experience and listen to a lot of comedians, regardless of if they identify the same as you, and still know that they know what they're doing. Going back to that question we had before, like, they are well aware of who they are, they are well aware of the position they're talking from, and the vibe that they're giving out, and the context of the audience, and the safety, and their perspective, even though they might be, you know, a cis white male, they are still capable of creating a, an inclusive, welcoming space. And I think... 
comedy has that potential and it's definitely moving in that. But again, the things that pick up the news and the media are the big, the big scary stories about, you know, your Dave Chappelle's and this night and that comedian who's cancelled now and all of that stuff. And I think it rarely reflects the, the great people who are like not on that side. You know, we, we focus on the negative um, in general way more than the positive. Yeah, but I feel like with the focus on the positive, that's also what made Hannah Gatsby go viral, I think. Um, but speaking of focusing on the positive, you also got some lovely reactions because of you being your authentic self on a lineup amongst otherwise just, you know, cis, straight, white men. You, you, uh, you told an anecdote on your TikTok. Could you, could you recall that story for us here? Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I do. I think I posted that recently, actually. My TikTok is a very weird amalgamation <laughs> of things. But that was that was an experience that lent into it. And, and, and that was coming more from a performer perspective. But I was on a lineup for a room in Sydney. But there's tiers of comedy shows, you know. Some of them are quite prestigious, and that's where the big names go. And some of them are starting out, and they're not as you know, anyone can rock up. And so the the quality of the room and what it means to be asked to perform on that lineup can change. And so this was a kind of a higher uh, or a more prestigious room in that sense. And so I was on the lineup and, you know, you don't really know who else is on until they ever post to social media or you get the email the day before with a little run sheet of, you know, this is the time to arrive and um, this is, uh, you know, the, the running order. Um, and I noticed it was it was pretty much, there was one cis female, there was myself, and the rest, probably seven acts, were like white cis males, um, straight white cis males. And that's no problem with straight white cis males, just gonna... <laughs> Like, I know many who are great comedians, but I mean, there is, it's not a a ratio, I suppose, of the population of Sydney um, and the population of comedians to be on that stage. It's it's a bit BS. But anyway, um, I was quite worried that me being quite like femme presenting and being gay in that lineup was going to put me at um, a risk of bobbing or furthermore... Um, kind of a risk of the crowd being quite anti-me inherently because if the the person who produces this room is booking a lineup like that they're booking it because they know their audiences and their audiences will like that so therefore that simple kind of maths in my head goes well I'm in for a rough ride at best or I'm in for a terrible ride and so um, the kind of first comedian goes up and bombs and like they're not really chatting to me either they don't know who I am I'm still a kind of a newer name and so I'm just kind of sitting there minding my own business. And then, um, yeah, I think one or two get up and then I go on. And I was a bit nervous to start with, but I did a really great set. And the audience were really lovely and it kind of took me by surprise. And that kind of fresh energy, I suppose, kind of fed back into my set. And so it was a really fun set. And I really remember coming off the stage, kind of like, you know, hair flick being like, mm, yeah, you'll talk to me now, won't you? Like, you know, like, I have one of the, you know, I always love those moments, which is really annoying, but in comedy where people, some people won't talk to you because you're either new or they don't know who you are. And then you go up on stage and you perform and then you come off and they're like, oh my God, you were actually really good. And I was like, I didn't say I wasn't like, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, and so that was a great experience. I was in that room that was probably straight and um, I did well and I and I felt good. 
But a few days later, I received a message on social media from someone who was queer in that crowd who just wanted to say thank you for, uh, well, to thank me for performing um, because, um, you know, they'd seen a lot of straight white guys on the lineup that weren't really speaking to them and sometimes punching down on our community. And so to see someone who was like them on stage and get a great reaction was kind of affirming for them, even as an audience member, to be like, well, I'm not a joke and I'm not alone in this room. Um, there are others like me. So that was, yeah, that was a really beautiful, heartwarming um, moment in my career so far. All right, with that lovely anecdote, it's time to get some music playing again. And yeah, it's good to know that in spaces that don't always have the best reputations, there's always people like AJ who are trying to make it better. Here's Macy Gray, I Try. You mentioned about this track that this is the only concert you've ever been to, which is wild. Well, different strokes for different folks, am I right? I used to go to a concert at least once a month, but I guess you're the other end of the spectrum. So, um, what made Macy Gray the one artist you saw live? My parents took me. Um... <laughs> so bad well i just i i would describe myself as an old soul even from a young age and the idea of a concert which was like loud and i might have to stand and the tickets were expensive and what if i need to use the bathroom and they've already got portaloos and i don't really want to use a portaloo um and then what if i want to eat and they're going to charge so much at the little kiosk things and i don't know then i have to take cash and when i'm going to put the cash and what i'm going to wear but what if it rained oh that's <laughs> Again, the chaos brain, you see it now, right? Um, right, yeah. That kept me away from concerts for a very long time. I was also a bit just kind of phobic of spaces with a lot of young people, alcohol and other substance infused. That kind of intimidated me just more from a balloon high school, whatever. Like those types of crowds were to me synonymous with the same popular kids who would probably be attending them. So that was kind of like, a, I think, a subconscious thing to protect myself i suppose by avoiding spaces like that um that could put me at risk but also it was also a lot about the portal loose um <laughs> and yeah my parents took me uh when we first moved to sydney to the opera house the sydney opera house and it was one of the first times i'd been in the building i'd been past it a lot and obviously it's very pretty and it's very iconic and they they had tickets to macy gray and it was really nice it was a beautiful experience I'd seen music live before in, in kind of theatre context, but they were they were generally like um, 
they weren't concerts. They were usually like variety performances or kind of more theatrical side of music as opposed to like a singer just doing their album. Um, so Maisie Gray, I think, was the first person that qualifies for like a concert in that respect. But um, it was really great. I had a great time. I knew the songs and um, just a beautiful, beautiful singer. Great, great at what they do. Perfect for the room they were in at the Opera House. And then I met them afterwards because they did some signings and stuff. And Maisie Gray is incredibly tall. Incredibly tall. <laughs> which caught me off guard because we were like, oh, where do we go? And we're like, they're there. <laughs> like, you over the heads of people. That's where they are. It's not no, not blending in the crowd. <laughs> I feel like, you know, Macy Gray, the Opera House would be a great location to see them live. Also, just the fact that you go to one concert and it's probably in like the most iconic concert venue in the world. I know, it's just like, oh yeah, I'll give it a go, let's go, <laughs> I'll try it out, I'll wait until I get to the opera house, of course, because I'm not doing anything less. Uh, <laughs> you also don't strike me as the type of person who would use a lot of music in their social media and comedy routines. Oh, I, I've, I've got a couple of jokes, I think, that are music-based, and it's more references and pop culture than music jokes, I suppose, um, but... Yeah, and I, I think, you know, a lot of comedians will speak from their truth, so to speak. But it, it's kind of like what you engage with, what triggers your mind to think in certain ways, what sparks an idea, what makes you question something. Yeah, music doesn't come up as much because I don't learn to listen to it as much. Um, and when I do, I don't have such an informed knowledge about it that it makes my mind think of things in certain ways. So I think in terms of a stimulus, it is not as much. But when I do solo shows, for example, I do consider audio quite a bit, which is I, I, I specifically differentiate music to audio in that respect because I it's more um, I, I think about the composition and how it affects the audience and what kind of sentiment people should be feeling at what specific times. And so it goes more into music um, kind of theory, I suppose, at that point and, and composition. But um, That sounds like the exact same way you just listen to music in your free time. Like you use music as a mood maker uh, in the same way you would put on that Nat King Cole album for a fancy dinner. That is a very good observation, actually. And that makes, yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's really true. I take back the comment about being able to read yourself. Um, <laughs> you've done it better than I could have. That's so true. So when um, talking about like your, your writing process and your thought process, I feel like social media also functions as a place to like try out jokes, which you then later use in your comedy routines. Is that also a, a, a true observation? Yeah, I think so. It, it has varying rates of success. Um, my, ter my Twitter is terrible. I hate my Twitter. But literally, I just throw out one-line ideas. And if I get a few likes from the few followers I have, then I'm like, okay, maybe I'll try it on stage. Um, uh, that's all I use Twitter for. Don't follow me. It's pretty bad. Um, I use other social medias for better things. Um, you know, TikTok has more range in it. You're able to have conversations. Sometimes it's it can be a, a quick sketch. It has more range to explore, which is quite fun. But again, it has limitations in terms of things like humor. The, the punchlines need to be quick and quite obvious. You can't really build up premises. You can't do um, ongoing stuff, really, because it's a, uh, you know, a, a quick fix um, serotonin type thing. So whilst you can, like, you know, you can try jokes and you can add your personality to jokes, which you can't do to Twitter um, because you can't 
see how someone says their tweet on Twitter on TikTok. You can, but then again, you don't get that that same sense of um, re- responding to the the viewers' feelings and what they're picking up on to change how you would perform that. So it's definitely great to be able to explore in those spaces and also and also to just connect with different people who like some of the stuff you're doing um, and just be like, oh, thank, you know, thanks so much and, and commenting and, and following other people as well. Um, and it definitely has its pros and definitely has its cons, but nothing beats the stage. How do you know the nuances? Like, how do you recognize the differences between with, like, for a better word, being TikTok funny versus being on stage funny? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think TikTok funny, there's a lot of... The way the algorithm works, I presume, I don't know for a fact, Um, but it tailors you to specific communities and different areas. Um, I noticed that I can't really do a lot of, like, pop culture stuff because that varies between Australia to America to the UK to the Netherlands to Europe to wherever. Um, so if you say things that are very slang or colloquial jargon, you lose that. Um, and so you can't make jokes about very kind of micro-cultural things that might be happening in Sydney per se, because a lot of people just kind of go, okay, I don't really understand what's happening and scroll on, even though the idea might be great. Um, you know, so you, you have some of those things and kind of in longer sets as well, like if you're talking more than five minutes, you can set something up at the beginning, you can call it back later, um, you know, uh, and the audience is still with you because they're following you and they're giving you that attention for the entire time. Even if people follow my TikTok and stuff, they don't really, I I don't presume, maybe some people do, um, but I don't. I don't presume that they've seen some of the other stuff that I've done before for me to then re-reference it um, in another joke and continue that conversation, I suppose, unless it's like a part one, part two thing. But yeah, so I think the the kind of the attention and the longevity of an audience staying with you is varied on TikTok. So it doesn't let you do cool things where you can play with setting up ideas and, and, and bringing them back later and building up a more complex version of you as a character or as a human, rather. Um, you know, you can do a minute or a minute and a half video, but um, again, you can only build up so much about you and, and explain so much of who you are to allow you to do a certain joke or to, to make that joke funny and not awkward um, <laughs> and, and things like that. So people listening to this and they want to check your TikTok, do you have like a recommended video people really need to check out? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Favorite TikTok I've ever done. I can't even remember TikTok. <laughs> I go through different things. One phase I was going, I was making up sketches. Uh, another phase I'm just chatting. Um, some of it I've put my stand up. I think there was a series that I was doing where it was like the queer agenda. And it was like, it's this pseudo start where I'm like, oh, like we're just going to chat about harmless queer things if you're not queer. Like, just keep on scrolling. Like, it's fine. Like, you don't have to be a part of it. And then the premise was, like, um, you know, now that the, now straight people have gone, welcome to the, like, queer agenda meeting. What are we doing today? You know, this whole idea that we have a secret policy that we're trying to, like, install or whatever. And then I would just make jokes around different things that queer people could do that were clearly stupid and hypothetical and not actually tangible, but it was fun <laughs> to make them up anyway. Yeah, I think, I can't remember what that series is called. It's, it's a while back in my TikTok, but it's, it's, I did a few of them and they were quite fun. So the last track for the day also has a connection to TikTok. It's the number one hit from the Encanto movie, We Don't Talk About Bruno. 
Why did you um, Why did you select this one? It is incredibly catchy, and it will not leave my head. <laughs> um, I think it's like an earworm. Like it's, but it's a very good song. There are so many I haven't seen Encanto. I really want to. I'm still trying to get a password for Disney from someone because I don't want to pay. But because um, <laughs> I just want to see that one film. I don't want to pay for a month subscription for one film. But I, I experienced it through TikTok. TikTok is actually what they think made it go as um, much of a viral success as it has. Um, it's outperformed Frozen. Let It Go was their number one rated Disney song. Um, we Don't Talk About Bruno smashed that record. Um, as the most popular Disney song of all time. I think part of that success is due to TikTok. And one of the benefits of TikTok as well, I kept on liking the videos because I was like, oh, these are great. I love the the lyrics are great. The characters, there's different songs from it, like Drip Drip, um, oh, Pressure. Oh, what's it called? I don't know the name. I know the lyrics. But, um, you know, one of the sisters talking about how she, you know, has to feel like she takes take on everyone else's problem um, in case everyone else can't emotionally deal with it. And... Um, there's a lot of elements that I'm like, oh, these are really beautiful sentiments that are being expressed. There's a lot of thought going behind each shot, each each lyric, each note, the voice, the and more, uh, more and more because I was engaging with that content. I was seeing more videos about the making of and the behind the scenes of it all, which just really built up this strong connection with it because I was like, oh, I understand this on so many more levels now. So no. For I went from just it's a catchy earworm to this is a like this has got a lot of meaning behind it a lot of cultural significance a a lot of um, personal significance for a lot of people um, it deals with a lot of kind of um, feelings and and um, not mental kind of mental struggles I suppose that a lot of people face and it kind of like really sums them up in a beautiful way. All right, let's have a listen. For now, this has been Queer Sounds. If you want to support the show financially, you can do so through patreon.com slash queersounds. If you don't want to support the show financially, but you still want to help out in any way, um, drop us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, at queersoundspod. Also, you could just go ahead and tell a friend. Um, much appreciate that. Get the word out there. I keep getting the feeling I'm forgetting something, but... You know, oh well, go, go visit QueerSounds.com for, for all information. But yeah, thank you again so much for tuning in. AJ, thank you for coming on the show. Here's the last track of the day, We Don't Talk About Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. We don't talk about Bruno. But it was my wedding day. It was our wedding Bruno says it looks like rain. Why did he tell us? In doing so, he floods my brain. I will get the umbrella. In a hurricane. What a joy you stay, but anyway.
Hold me, I'll grow a gut. And just like he said, he said, oh, no. oh, my hand with his beer. Now look at my head. On his way. He told me that the man of my dreams would be just out of reach. Betrothed to another. It's like I hear him. Hey, sis. I want not like a I sound out of now. I can hear him now. Bruno. Yeah, about that Bruno. I really need to know about Bruno. Give me the truth and the whole truth. Bye.